0: Another edition of Behind the Lens for those of you that were tuning in. We had a little technical difficulty, frozen computers. Obviously, the computer was celebrating National Nap Day and taking a nap uh, at the start of our show. So, but we are here. We'll run a little long today to make up for it, maybe. Uh, You're stuck with me today. Greg is off doing some lovely things with his with his parents, Uh, but we've got a jam-packed show. Last week, we had so much content, couldn't even get to it. But we're going to talk about one of my my Oscar pushes for the year, which is Cinderella. We've got two fantastic films uh, with some great people calling in. Bloodsucking Bastards. God, I love this film. Uh, In the vein of Joss Whedon, Drew Goddard. It is fabulous. Yvette Yates, um, my, my friend, my pal, Yvette. Is in the film. She's going to be calling in at 11:15. Director Brian James O'Connell is going to call in at 11:30. Then we've got a documentary for all you wrestling fans out there: The Resurrection of Jake the Snake, uh, an incredible story. Uh, some of you may have seen the documentary that was done some years ago, uh, Beyond the Mat, which pictured Jake at a really Jake Roberts at a really bad point in his life after his wrestling career had kind of fallen. Onto hard times. Um, this is indeed a resurrection. Uh, and thanks in large part. Due to Diamond Dallas Page. So we will actually have the executive producer Chris Bell. Joining. Calling in live at 1145. To talk about. The wonderful world of wrestling. But. It's also another very big day. For all the TCM fans out there. The TCM Classic Film Fe- Film Festival schedule. Was released this morning. Uh, It has been the hot topic for so many people. And we'll get into some of that a little later in the show. Probably near the end of some of the titles and some of the great things that TCM has coming up March 26th through 29th. Uh, There are still tickets and passes available, people. So to see some really great films, classic films of every shape and size, um, go over to the TCM website and check it out. But first, let's start with Cinderella. Opens in theaters everywhere this Friday, March 13th. It is, in a word, masterful. Uh, if the Academy does not see fit to give Oscar nominations to, for production design, cinematography, costume design, and score come next February... We have a serious problem at the Academy. This is majestic, exquisite. It is magical, in a word. I had a chance uh, at the recent press day to talk to, uh, the. in addition to Ken Brana, and next week we'll hear some of my interview with him. But I talked with Sandy Powell, costumer, about creating... The iconic blue Cinderella ball gown that you were seeing grace every billboard, every bus station, every TV ad, all over the all across the country. So, when it comes to creating that this floating blue gla- blue gown, what exactly went into designing it? And here's what Sandy Powell had to say.
1: Okay. <laughs> How did it come together? I mean, okay, going back over what you have said, I mean, we'll talk about the ball gown first, get that out of the way. I mean, the, my primary concern for the ball gown is, is as you've seen, luckily it worked, was its movement. I mean, the, getting the colour right and actually what I wanted above anything else was to make it move because the most important thing she, she does in the, in the film is dance in it and run away in it. So it had to look lovely when she was doing both those things, especially the running away. I kind of, and at night. So I was imagining the dress at night Floating behind it, and then I needed it to be able to be seen at night. And I, mm-hmm. one of my original ideas was to have it light up from inside. And I thought, we're well, not going to literally do that, but mm-hmm. but so I wanted the the whole feeling of it to be light,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in movement and light in tone as well, but also have movement in the colour, which is what How that many all layers happened. did you have under there and what fabric? Not many. I mean, well, very. There's, there's a, a crinoline cage mm-hmm. which gives it the the silhouette. Mm-hmm. Over the top of that there's um, so a couple of petticoats but with lots and lots of frills on the bottom that you, that you get to see mm-hmm. uh, when she dances, when she jumps and there are frills on the inside of the crinoline as well so you get to see mm-hmm. that. And then the layers over the top, there's only about five or six layers of very, very fine fabrics what, what? The very top layer is a, is a silk it's called silk crepeleine, which is a little little bit heavier than a chiffon, mm-hmm. a little bit not, not quite as wafty but the layers underneath that a polyester fabric called Umissima, which is a new kind of fabric that we discovered. That's really, really light. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like uh, smoke, really. I mean, it's like it just it just wafts. It really does. And that and I use different colours of that, like a green and a blue and a lavender and a lilac. And a silvery color. And then the base layer was a, a, a really cheap fabric of um, an iridescent pale white color that we sort of put a bit of blue through. And that's the one that, that the light bounces off that. Mm-hmm. Um, looks like there's more to it than there is. It's actually very, very light. It's gorgeous. Uh, but, but, I mean, a lot of fabric. There's 270 yards of fabric in each
0: dress. <laughs> and we made eight of them. So, to give you an idea of what 270 yards of fabric is... Stretch your arm out and roughly measure from the tip of your nose to the end of your outstretched arm and hand. That's roughly one yard. 270 of those went into one dress. And when you see it on camera, it, it, waft is a perfect word that Sandy uses for the dress because it does. It looks as if the dress itself is floating on a cloud. Absolutely breathtaking. Interesting, I found, was that she said, you know, she originally wanted it to light up from inside, but she wasn't going to do that. Where she did do that is with the Fairy Godmother's dress, which is worn by Helena Bonham Carter. And it's actually run on battery pack with 450 LED lights in it. And it is a magical experience. The dress, I believe, is currently on display down at El Capitan Theater. So anybody heading into Hollywood... Wander in and take a look at some of these gorgeous, gorgeous creations by Sandy Powell uh, for Cinderella but it 's not just the women that she was dressing she 's also dressing the men and with the men the the detail the there is embroidery that is patterned that is beautiful, and then very distinctive colors of blues, greens, and golds and you 'll see the tone progress. As the film progresses and the characters develop. So I had a chance to ask her about selecting those colors and designing for the men as well as the women.
1: Okay. Well, the men. We knew that the men were all going to be military. I mean, with the prince and then the captain of the guard, who's his right-hand man, and the king were all military. And then the grand duke is diplomatic. What he wears is he's not military, he's diplomatic, which is all the embroidery. All the embroidery was done in Pakistan we you know, sort of designed the, the did drawings of how the embroidery should be and then the pieces, the pattern pieces were, were cut out or marked out actually on fabric, that was sent off and then I had somebody in Pakistan who's who actually runs workrooms and they did all the embroidery there because they have all the bullion and the thread and they can do it quicker than anywhere else and it was amazing actually um, but colour wise, the other colours the colours for the prints I knew were going to be, well the green when we first see him Hunting. I mean, for me, that kind of had to be a green for the hunting. But I like. But I put the bits of blue in in the cravat and his waistcoats or vests. Because it suited him. He's got those fabulous blue eyes, so he always had to have a bit of blue going on, even when he was. And then when he was in the white for the ball, he has the silver cravat, and then he progresses through blues. And then I had to decide on the colours, the blues and the golds for the for the palace. It was sort of like deciding, okay, what are the colours, the royal colours, and that's what all the servants wear, what all the soldiers wear, and it was that sort of turquoise blue and um, gold.
0: So needless to say, Richard Madden's blue eyes certainly influenced a lot of the color palette that Sandy Powell picked for the costuming here. But I know, you're all waiting. The shoe, the crystals, and Swarovski. uh, The creation of the shoe, all of the Swarovski crystals. I spoke with producers of the film, Allison Schirmer and and David Barron, specifically about how Swarovski became involved and the more than 20,000 crystals that they supplied for the various costuming. And here's what they had to say. I want to know how we got Swarovski on board here. 20,000 crystals, shoes. I would say that Swarovski
2: was always a, a, a passionate partner from the very beginning. And they have a long history with Sandy Powell. I don't know if you guys have gotten a chance to chat with her yet, but this is... Very early on, when Sandy was trying to research, if you will, the um, challenge of how do you build a crystal shoe, because she wanted to fill the crystal shoe. It's not like there's a long list of
3: collaborators. (laughs) And
2: given her history with Swarovski and Dizzy's history with Swarovski, I would say it was one of those relationships that was almost de facto and organic and they were on board to help. Mm -hmm. Sandy designed the shoe but they were great collaborators in terms of coming up with
4: it was
5: a yeah. real challenge uh, for them because actually, you, you can't build it as a, a single entity. It, it's um, it, it's single complicated unit. in terms it's of it's really the
2: facet- faceting of it, but also there were thousands of crystals in Cinderella's gown. I mean, they were a partner. More than like ten
5: thousand.
2: They were a partner in, in many, in, in in so many
5: different ways. Yeah. And. In, yeah.
0: and. That's the producer's take on Swarovski. And for those of you that don't know, Swarovski has had a partnership with Hollywood for decades, uh, going all the way back to the days of classic Hollywood. And anybody that does frequent uh, TCM, watches films, listens to a lot of the, the information that Ben Mankiewicz and Robert Osborne impart, you find out just how... Much uh, how involved Swarovski was, is and has been with Hollywood, with movie making, to the point that Swarovski now has a filmmaking division, and that went into effect before the most recent Romeo and Juliet a couple of years ago. So they are a beautiful and wonderful partnership. And you're going to have to wait. I'm going to tease you and make you wait to hear about how Cinderella's shoe got made, because right now, I have, I have the wonderful. Yvette Yates on the line. Are you there, Yvette? I am here.
5: Hi, Debbie. How are you? Hello,
0: you. <laughs> I am so happy to hear from you. Oh,
5: likewise. It's always such a pleasure. And I love how it's uh, soon after just another event, after the Spirit Awards. It's really exciting. Uh,
0: you and I, it's either we see each other and talk to each other all the time, or we have a long stretch in between while you're working.
5: I know, but it feels
0: like, you know, no time has passed, which I love. I know. For those people that are not familiar with Yvette, you need to get familiar with Yvette. I mean, she is not only is she absolutely adorable and a fine actress, she is also a scientist who left science for acting, which God only knows why. So, Yvette, why would you do that?
5: You know, it was something, I, I knew I wanted to do entertainment, and I, w- I wasn't sure actually what it was, if it was producing, acting, and I didn't know had to do it after I took the MCAT. Um, I, I had to tell my poor parents that I wasn't going to go to medical school, and they were, you know, luckily they were very supportive, and I told them, you know, I'm going to just start learning. The only way I know how, which is working in production, so that's what I did. And I think it really helped kind of lay the, the groundwork to you know, to understand how the infrastructure works and respect people's times and just the you know, just the whole system.
0: Well and, and I think it's a testament that you did that because it reflects also in a lot of the choices that you've made as an actress. I mean, we first met back when you did El Gringo with Scott Atkins, who was also basically starting out, it was before he had done Expendables and uh, Mm -hmm. is a bad guy and has since moved on to playing a king in a Hercules movie and a bunch of other things. But
5: Yeah, he was really great to work with. I had a really great time.
0: I know, and isn't he just... To just listen to Scott talk is just...
5: (laughs) With his accent. He's very humble and he works really hard. And, you know, it's always nice to work with actors like that. And I feel like I... I've been fortunate enough to work with, you know, people who just love their craft. And, and when you're on set, it just feels like you're just part of the family. And that's, you know, that's how it's been, I feel.
0: Well, part of the family, you've been working in a lot of ensembles lately. A couple years ago, you did Sorority Party Massacre. Yes. You have the, you have this thing for Action and Blood. I don't know what it is.
5: <laughs> but this seems to be... A, I haven't... It's been fun because I've been able to do different genres. So it's like the action films, the horror films, the comedy, a little bit of everything.
0: Well, and and of course, you know, with blood-sucking bastards, it all comes together in one.
5: Oh my gosh, it's really—I mean, I when I read the script, I was laughing so hard, and that really happens because sometimes you're like. Well, maybe this actor will make it funnier, or, or, you know, once I see it on screen, but on the page, it was it was amazing, and I was like, I have to be a part of this.
0: Well, I mean, you have, you have the action experience down, you certainly had working with blood down, yeah.
5: so, yeah,
0: it just made sense to open this up and, and let you, you know, be part of this, and for those that have not seen this, this film yet, I can't tell you, an, I can't recommend it enough. It is hilarious. It is dry. It is deadpan. And you will laugh yourself silly watching it.
5: It is. There's great chemistry. And I think uh, you can see it in the writing. You know, Dr. God comedy troupe, they, they also starred in it and co-wrote it uh, you know, from the original screenplay from Ryan Mitz and, and one of the directors, Brian O'Connell, directed it. And I think it just comes to life because it's just really natural, the way the comedy plays. And it's just it's there.
0: So I'm going to let you tell everybody, and by the way, anybody that wants to see it, there might be tickets available for tonight. I don't know. This is now the second film in the Arclight Slamdance Cinema Club that's going to be down at the Arclight tonight. I know that last night's film, Resurrection of Jake the Snake, I know your film, tickets have sold so quickly uh, that they moved you into bigger theaters
5: I know, and they were like, "Well, maybe you guys might have told do to The dome." I'm like, "We should have done the dome, you know, because I think people will just absolutely love it." And it won't hit theaters until later this year, and I think until the fall or winter. But this is a nice like, preview for you know for those who are coming or are able to come tonight at Arclight in Hollywood, and it's going to be a fun crowd. It's about a little over 400 seats, so that will be fun to share it with them. Oh my! And you're going to be there. I will be there taking my mom, who's in town, and my my siblings, so it'll be fun to share with the family. Now, have they has the family seen it yet?
0: No, not yet.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I want to
0: nice <laughs> know what your dad thinks when he sees this one.
5: <laughs> oh, well, he's on, it's my mom, but he'll see. I think it might screen at another film festival in El Paso in August, so if it does, then he'll get the chance.
0: <laughs> so, for those that that are listening, us laugh hysterically and and talk up blood sucking bastards. Tell everybody what is the premise of Blood Sucking Bastards?
5: I mean, the premise is you know it's it's a very much shot of the Dead I meets mean, office space. So, it, it we're, there's a whole bunch of us working in this office. You know, it's very just it's depressing. You know, no one wants to work there. No one likes their boss. And like and, like every office job out there. Yeah, yeah. And someone comes in, and that's Pedro Pascal, and he turns things around in a not so conventional way, which is uh, turning everyone into vampires, or, or most of us.
0: Well, and you're one of you're one of the first ones we we see you as this nice, sweet, wonderful receptionist, and then yeah. all of, and all of a sudden you're you're a glamour queen.
5: It was kind of fun, and all the prosthetics, I was like, oh my gosh, I never had that much prosthetics.
0: What is that and, What is that experience of all those prosthetics like for you?
5: Because so, you've got a great you know,
0: transformation.
5: It, yeah, it helps you transform really easily into that character, because all those expressions <laughs> are stuck on your face, <laughs> that you can't help it, you just look like scary, and... But uh, taking it off was like, oh my gosh, I was like, oh, it, was, it, it took longer to take, twice as long to take off, I think, than to put on. What I, I have so much respect for those artists, too.
0: though. How long did it, because any when people see this and they see you, this, these prosthet- prosthetics are so detailed, so intricate,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, how long did it take to put them on you, and then how long to take it off?
5: I felt like it was about two three hours probably to put them on and then like about three or four hours to take them off. And then when I went home, I, I still had to, you know, just go over again because it was mostly on my face and the neck and some of my hands. And, and it took, it took some time. And, but I, those artists, those makeup artists are just amazing because the details really, I think, make it feel real and it's not cheesy. It just, it feels like, you know, hey, we are vampires and I think it shows on screen. It pops.
0: Oh, I think it looks fabulous, and so much of that is due to Brian's direction, and what he does, his cinematographer, Matt Mosier, just really amps up the color, and and the camera movement, and really plays into this whole world, creating this great environment for you.
5: Yeah, it has a really uh, great pace.
0: So, how much action did you get to do in this one?
5: Because I know you like doing action... I do. I actually really love it. You know, I think with every film, it's fun. You get to try new things or learn new things, and and with this one, uh, I did get to do some action, especially towards the end. And I actually ended up getting a cut, and now I have like a little scar on my on my on my stomach just from from one of the moves. And I was like, wow, it's my first war scar. Oh, <laughs> I know, all from that film. But I'll remember it always.
0: Now, see, now you have to take a picture of your war wound, your scar, you know, blow it up, put it on social media, and say, I have earned my stripes.
5: I have. I feel proud because those actions, you know, all those people who do action, I'm I, wow. I mean, just the stunts that they do. I mean, this is on the lower scale, but it's, I I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun.
0: Well, and you've got some great scenes going on with Fran Kranz. Um, who is an absolute delight in this film. I mean, I fell in love with him in Cabin in the Woods uh, that was directed by Drew Goddard and written by Drew and Joss Whedon. Um, Fran is just, he's so at home in this role and in this genre. But the two of you have a wonderful chemistry.
5: Yeah, it's uh, the unrequited love. (laughs) And I'm like, please, just love me. And, you know, he's... Obviously, has other things, and uh, Amanda, you know, Amanda on his mind, and everything else that's going on. But it, it's a fun twist with every character. We all want something or need that trans- transformation, and and we're given that in a different sense.
0: Yes, you are given a transformation. <laughs> what is it? What is it that appeals to you about these ensemble films? I mean, Sorority Party Massacre definitely an ensemble inherent vice for which you just picked up the Robert Altman Award at the Spirit Awards um, for part of an ensemble. As an actress, what is the beauty of these ensemble pieces? What is the appeal?
5: I think the appeal is that you all have to carry, you all carry one another, and I think you just feel like you have, everyone has everything at stake just as equal. There's no I don't know, I just feel like everyone really matters. And I think whether it's a small role or a big role, that's, that's the same way I feel. But it really gives you a chance to work with such a myriad of actors. And, and to put to, you know, I give, you know, to, for the director to fully uh, visualize that and put that on screen, that's, an, that's just another art form. And for those who can do it, I think, you know, that's when people really appreciate and enjoy the film. I think it takes so much. It does take a lot of work because there's so
0: many intricate pieces. Well, and, you know, Inherent Vice, you were being directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh,
5: uh, yeah. it was. Yeah, that was one of my most surreal moments. I mean, yeah, to this day.
0: How do you react when you find out, you know, clearly for Bloodsucking Bastards, you read the script and you were jumping up and down and you wanted this film? Um. How do you, how do you react to a more somber deeper piece like Inherent Vice? Do you have wonder if you can do it if it goes deeper than you think you can go because the character of Luz in Inherent Vice is very key? Yeah, well, I mean, I had, you know, Fred, you know, be,
5: before auditioning for, you know, when I found out about the audition, I didn't have the book on me, and so all I did I could do research on what was going on at that time, the synopsis, you know, reviews of the book, and you know, as the character Luce, who's a chicken in the '60s and '70s, I, I was, you know, I put myself in her mind frame. What was what was going on politically, or you know, any kind, you know, of you know, her educational field, what was going on, and her family. So that all kind of layered into who she was, and and that's the way I approached it.
0: Hmm. And how do you approach a role like Zabs in Bloodsucking Bastards?
5: Bloodsucking. It, it's funny. Every every project is so different, and and this one, I don't know. I just understood. I understood her because I do have a shyness, <laughs> and I think every character you utilize a different part of yourself, and so and I think that's what eases you into that character and. And with uh, best and sucking Bastards, you know she's a shy, very, you know, at ease person. And but she, you know, she wants so much, and and she has this love, and and then she, you know, when she transforms, it's like she just has this new life, and you know, it just it, it just felt really natural. It was, I don't know, I really enjoyed it, and I think it's all in the writing too. That always just makes you know life as an actor so much easier when the writing is so good. Yeah, the writing
0: for Bloodsucking Bastards is so crisp. It is so sharp, mm-hmm. and you know, writing deadpan, you know, dry, darker comedy is not easy.
5: No, and it, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, I think it's uh, it's a really hard task, and that's why when I read the script, I was like, wow. This is amazing, and the fact that I was laughing just, just by reading it, I, I knew it was a project I wanted to be a part of.
0: <laughs> so are you more like Zabs as shy, lovely Zabs <laughs> or vampire Zabs? And remember like, you remember a combination. I was gonna say, remember your dad is gonna hear this at some point. So I
5: know <laughs> My mom is with me right now, so it's really funny.
0: And your mom is probably laughing herself silly. Yeah,
5: she's here with me. <laughs> Well, well, like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to see tonight? (laughs) (laughs) She is going to love it.
0: You it is very tasteful. You are clothed kind of. But everything important is covered. You know, parent your parents can be very happy. They don't have to worry. So I think your mom is just going to she's going to thoroughly enjoy this film.
5: Uh, thank you so much. I, I think she will. And I think everyone else will. I think it's a, it's kind of a nice, quiet film, and then when people see it, they just find this gem, and they're like, oh my god, this is amazing. This is so funny. And next up, you've got what, a
0: film, Rivers Nine?
5: I have Rivers Nine coming out, with, uh, which was the same director as uh, Sorority Party Massacre, Chris Freeman and Justin, and... And then there's two other projects I'm attached to that hopefully we'll be filming uh, in the summer or the fall, depending you know where they're at. So once those get going, I will definitely fill you in. I know you will. You always you do. know. We talk. I mean, if it's not social media, you know, a phone call, you know, we'll, we'll talk. Of and I love that.
0: I love that too. And oh, I love you for calling in. I have Brian on hold. So now, what 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 embarrassing thing should I ask Brian?
5: Oh, what embarrassing
0: thing. About the production. What embarrassing thing should we ask Brian? Oh,
5: goodness. I'm trying to think. He worked so hard for a thing. I know he did a cameo in
0: the film. Well, then I'll ask him about his, his blood sucking cameo. Yeah,
5: ask him about that. I will. Well, you have fun. <laughs> and, and all the blood at the end.
0: I have to ask about that. So yes. you you have fun tonight, my friend. Enjoy Thank the huge you. theater. And the massive crowd. If I can make it down there tonight, I will. If I can juggle okay. something, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Okay. <laughs> but and then as soon as we get all the audio and the video for this, you'll have the link so that Dad can watch it.
5: All right. Thank you so much. You're Thanks, awesome. Yvette. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye.
0: And now I have the wonderful Brian James O'Connell on the line.
3: (laughs) I'm embarrassed by nothing.
0: Embarrassed by nothing. Well, you know, (laughs) I was just talking to Yvette about blood-sucking bastards.
3: I know. I was listening to it. She was like, what (laughs) what embarrassing thing I don't know.
0: You trained her her well. Ah. Hello. Oh, my. Hello. What have you done? You have followed into the vein of Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon here.
3: Oh, man. Um, that's, uh, that's extremely uh, flattering. Uh,
0: this uh, is... A
3: comparison that I'm not sure I entirely deserve. Thank you.
0: As I was watching the film, I kept thinking, my mind kept going to Drew and Cabin in the Woods. And not just because Fran Kranz is in your film. Right, But a lot of it has to do with Matt Mosher and your cinematography and your color saturation and the design of the film. You know, oh, just looking God, at it, before we even get into this incredible script that, okay. that you guys have, just looking at it, you just want to see more. You want to be in this world. Because, let's face it, all of us who have ever been in an office, we have worked for Blood Sucking Bastards.
5: Oh, yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, pers- oh. personally, I worked for an attorney that was f- referred to by many of my colleagues as Satan. So, <laughs> I relate here. I relate here. As So, how did you... Approaching this technically, uh, to start mm-hmm. with, um, working with Matt Mosier, your cinematography, designing the whole look of Blood Sucking Bastards...
3: Uh, well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, and Mosher's great. Uh, I love working with him. Uh, really knowledgeable. And, and he he, uh, I developed a very quickly sort of a, a you know, a shorthand in a second language. So there was very rarely where I was like, no, no, I want this over here. Uh, for the most part, like he just, he got me right there. Uh, the biggest technical issue, you know, with something like this is like, okay, how do you make something look you know, the environment, you know, it's a crappy job. So it means you got to have, you know, the overhead lights and, you know, not like how do you make it look professionally good, but also story-wise crappy.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> and so there's a lot of, like, riding the fine line. Um, <clears throat> I think mostly uh, my inspiration came from uh, the last movie I directed, Angry White Man. We had a, a British comedian by the name of Matt Barry, who I'm a big fan of, and he was part of the cast uh... but he was in a show a bbc show way back in the day called *Garth Marenghi's dark place where it, was, it was as if there was a you know if they gave clive barker or stephen king the the, you know the hundred percent car blocks to do a tv show and so they, they spent a lot of money to make it look like they had spent no money at all mm-hmm. so, so i studied a lot of that and then just the idea of like uh... over the course of we had three separate looks for three separate days it was your regular day day after the first death and then the day that we're once uh once the office was truly being turned into sort of a crypt in a tomb and so over the course of, over the course of the movie we sort of dim the lights and up the saturation so by the time you get to the end you're like oh oh yeah this place is full of vampires these guys gotta get out of here <laughs> that was you know, the technical approach there.
0: Your color is so important here. The color of the wall. Did you build mm-hmm. the sets from the ground up or were these existing? Did you paint the walls? Because you, uh, you, you have that enough, disgusting uh, color.
3: Yeah, uh funny enough that was the half and half. We we took an existing space that uh had been uh one of those like phone bank places that um you know, like that, like call up little old ladies and try and talk them into reverse mortgages, like very shady. Uh-huh. Apparently, apparently the FBI raided it, and the guy who was running it um, wasn't. Thankfully for him, wasn't there, and he found out about it, and he just uh, he just hopped on the plane back over to his original country, and so that space was <clears throat> sort of gutted, but also sort of there, and still had a lot of the banks and stuff. So <clears throat> the uh, Color on the wall, they had that weird carpeting on the walls. I was like, oh, that's horrible. We're going to keep that. We're going to keep that. <laughs> uh, but, but we built uh, we built Evan's office, and then on one side of uh, the main office space, on, on the other side of that is where we built um, uh, a set uh, for the basement, mm-hmm. uh, which had been other bank of sets. So, like, we sort of used it as. As a soundstage, because I mean, honestly, if you walk out the back of the office, it just opens into a massive garage where uh, someone was someone was storing a hundred broken down motorcycles.
0: Oh, lovely! I
3: like, yeah, I was like, I, I was like, this is such a beautiful image, but there's no way I can work this in. <laughs> to the store with hey, in France over there, on a, a motorcycle and Doctor Joy. Uh, <clears throat> So we built the sets that way, and so we just kind of got lucky that our color scheme that we kind of wanted to use was already sort of built in, Mm -hmm. and that that weird white tan is easy, uh, it's easy to play around because it's not white walls; so you're not just bouncing everything back into the lens. Uh, And it uh, it
0: worked really mm -hmm. well when you were making it more crip light with the darker, with the brownish light and the darker lighting, too. It worked really beautiful. was Thank you. was there a significance to your choice of the neon blue and green post-its on the walls?
3: Oh, the neon blue and green postits uh part of that was working with uh with uh said design because again, it was the kind of thing of like you can't go you don't want overly dress it uh you want to put a nick and and you know you want knickknack in every nook and cranny, but you did want to have a little bit of like as if people had been trying. To make it personable and make it at home, and just uh, and just like not getting it right. Uh, The blue and green, I just thought was uh, I thought was funny because we were trying to find like like well, it's blood sucking bastards. We're gonna throw a lot of red around here. Like what what's the stuff on the color wheel that we can put up so that we start splashing it with blood? It it contrasts, but it does it isn't jarring. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of a lot of those little post-it notes. There's a little Easter eggs in there. There's like inside jokes to the different actors that had to sit there and we would change them. Uh, from time to time, and put little notes on there, just like you know, "fuck you." Uh, the way, the way that hopefully you know, people working this shitty job would do those kind of pranks.
0: So, did you storyboard or shot list or do a combination of both for this?
3: <laughs> um, I I prefer to do shot lists. I have a I have an editing degree, so I have very it's very easy for me to uh, compartmentalize and visualize everything in my head and put it together. And and even on set, as we're making sure, like I start with an A list, a shot list, and then. A B shot list and a C shot list and a D shot list, and so I'm very good about being able to package it together and saying like, nope, okay, I know what we're gonna do. We're gonna change it now." I am loathed, uh, and I know everyone loves storyboards because everyone likes to be able to walk on set that day, look at the storyboards, and go, "Oh, that's what we're shooting today." But uh, and in the way I like to direct is I, I believe. You you know you write a movie when you write it you write a movie when you shoot it and you write a movie when you edit it and they can be all the same movie but they can be vastly different versions of that movie mm-hmm. and uh, I like going with stuff on the set if the if the actor <clears throat> discovers a piece of blocking or a piece of business that works really well I want to be able to have the freedom to move around it and my fear is not fear I should say but that's why I'm loathe to do any storyboards because people come in watch that and then they get locked into it and then when you change it on the fly. Uh, you know, everyone from you know the best boy Grip all the way up to the producer is like, whoa, 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 what are you But this is on the board. We can't do this. And so I just, if, I, if there's no board, they can't question it. And then if we do it and it comes out well, then I can always just lie and say, yes, that was it, that was the way it was in my head the entire time. Yep.
1: <laughs> well,
0: because of the fact that you, that you can edit, you do edit. Does that help you? Um, are you basically editing on the fly? so that you're saving yourself time and you're not having extraneous shots?
3: Yes. Uh, and also, I don't... Um, it it removes a lot of the uh, the need or the insecure director need that you sometimes see where it's like, well, if I, I, well, let's get the standard coverage first. You know, let's get the wide and then let's get the, the two-shot and then the OTSs and then close-ups and all that. <clears> that like you're never going to use it. Waste time. Everyone knows it. Um... Yeah, it's pretty much all in my brain. I have, a, I have an idea. I have an idea before I walk on the set, and then I, you know, it changes from location to location. But you know, I can keep it all in the brain. And then uh, I, I like. I don't like to use actors as chess pieces because I'm an actor as well, and I know what uh, they want and what they need. So I'll let the actors get into a space and block it themselves because it's a lot easier for me and Mosher to move the camera around them than it is to get them to do something that's just unnatural for them. And then mm-hmm. I'm just. Now, like I said, I'm using them like chess pieces and I'm tweaking them and uh they're they're not mannequins, they're live people and they they they're passionate about their craft, they wanna feel like they're doing the best they possibly can. I'm still gonna get my shots, I'm still gonna get my stuff. And uh <clears throat> and uh, it's it's rare that I find myself I mean, obviously do there's due to budget and time constraints, you know, you don't you never get everything that you want, but there's very few times where I'm sitting in the editing room and going, Ooh, I should I ooh, I need this <laughs> I needed a close-up here, and I didn't get it. It's rare that I don't get everything that I need.
0: Well, yeah, I'm glad that you don't use people as chess pieces, and it's very obvious in the way you have cast this film. Um, mm-hmm. The chemistry between your characters, number one, the skill level, the comedic skill level of each of your actors is phenomenal. Uh, I mean, from Joel Murray all the way down to Marshall Gibbons as Frank. Mm-hmm. But you you get these setups going, you've got Fran Kranz and you've got Joey Kern, who just fuel each other, and it is a joy watching them. You throw Marshall Givens into the mix, and those three are a perfect comedic triumvirate. How did you go about casting um, the group that you have? I know a lot of them came out of Dr. God comedy troupe, and were Mm -hmm. involved in the writing, but actually positioning within, you know, positioning the pieces...
3: Well, <clears> that's a good question. I mean, uh, Fran, uh, Fran came first. I think he came through uh, a friend of a friend of uh, our producer, Brandon Evans, from Maybe This Year Productions. And, uh, and then Brett and Patrick, uh, Brett Forbes and Patrick Rizzotti from, uh, from Fortress Features, the other producers. On, they brought us Emma because they had worked with her before mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> on their movie, The Collection. And Emma's great. Uh, we, we Skyped each other over the Christmas break and uh and, you know, so Madeline love. she's uh, she's really super fun. Uh, but Fran came first, and he had read it and really enjoyed it and where we were coming from, and he was like, this is the kind of stuff I want to be doing more of. So that made it very easy to be able to go around. <clears throat> Someone, uh, you know, the casting director suggested Joey Kern, and Joey and I strangely had met at uh, at IOS like several years before that. Like, we were in a cage match against each other, and so when we met, he was like, oh, yeah, I remember, oh, yeah, that was you. <laughs> um. Yeah, so then the Dr. God guys, Justin Ware, David Park, and Neil Gargillo and Sean Cowley all have, you know, minor roles in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marshall, Marshall came to us, uh, we've, Marshall's been a friend of Dr. God for a long while, and we've, you know, and played with him and stuff. And uh, we actually had to fire uh, the original guy uh, that was, was playing that role after half a day. Wow. <laughs> just, very, very nice gentleman. All that just wasn't... Um, didn't have the exact same approach to comedy that the rest of us had and you know it was difficult to uh I mean he had the right look and he was a it was a very talented actor. Uh but his just his approach to the material just was so incongruous to the rest of us that it was it wasn't like slapstick, but it was definitely over the top. Uh and it made that first day of shooting very difficult. And then so we just set off the side, like, what are we gonna do? And I was like, you know what, F this, man. Let's just go get Marshall. Marshall can crush this. Uh, we, we, we got too much in our head of trying to cast this role with a bigger name than it needed to be, and we should just go find the right person. Mm-hmm. And thank God we did, because Marshall, you know, like you said, he's perfect. Once you slot him in next to Joey and Fran, that's the three amigos. That's the, that's the you know, <clears throat> that's the dude and Lebowski, you know. A- absolutely. Yeah, it's, that's you really see it happen there. And then, of course, uh, your bets we, uh, who you just, the lovely Yvette that you just got the phone with. She's, you know, beautiful and sexy, but also very sweet and uh, and can play multiple roles, you know, going from, you know, the mousy to, you know, the sex pot and and, uh, and being able to just being so giving. And she's uh, so kick Everyone else, And then Zabeth Russell is uh, a friend of mine. She played Elaine and... um I think Zabeth is one of the funniest human beings I've ever met. I, thought she, I think she should have been a household name three years ago, and so I've been saying that for a while, and I'm like, I, when I, the next time I get an opportunity to put you in a movie, I'm going to do it so that I can say that I discovered you. And you see it. <laughs> Zabeth is great in that in that role, and it's basically my job there is just to point camera at Zabeth and walk away and don't screw it up.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, somebody that really took me by surprise is a standout. Um to has all the Nathan Fillion qualities is Pedro Pascal who played Max
3: oh my God how good, yes I, first of all
0: I am just i'm in, it, I am first, just crazy about him
3: yes, um you mentioned Joel Murray earlier. I just real quick want to speak about him before we get to Pedro Joel is the is the absolute number one guy I wanted in that role, and I fought for him and I fought for him i 'm so happy because he crushed it, and <clears throat> we know him from Iowa as well. he's a very nice guy, Pedro Pascal. Prince Oberyn, the Red Viper. Um, <laughs> he came to us as the casting director, and he and I met uh, at a coffee shop. Uh, and I think we talked for two and a half. This was right after he had gotten the Game of Thrones role, but he hadn't gone to shoot any of it yet. <clears throat> um, so we talked for about two and a half hours. I think we spent 20 minutes talking about Bloodfucking Bastards, about the script. Like, we just, we clicked as human beings. Superman. he's so nice. And so charming, and then when you see him show up on Game of Thrones, and he just kills it. <clears throat> I mean, he's the only—he's only, I think, the second American they've ever hired. It's like him and Dinklage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Every mean, you see how wildly talented as an actor he is, and then to be to watch that show and then to see like, man, that guy was in my movie, and and so was Fran and Joel. and was like, I got so lucky with this cast. I like, we hit it out of the park on this cast, so. And for anyone who's listening, um, if you like Game of Thrones and you like Prince Obrin, you can like that actor. You can root for Pedro Pascal in real life because he is so nice and so charming and so genuine and so like passionate without being pretentious. Uh I, I love the man. He's great. And he deserves every good thing happening. to
0: Oh, me. I I am just I'm crazy about him. He just mm-hmm. he just stole yeah. stole the show. And i I just absolutely adore him. So I have yeah, before a, before mm-hmm. before I let you go here, Brian, yeah. um I have to ask you how much blood did you use?
3: Uh as much as it would let me, and I probably would have used more if we could have gotten our hands on it.
0: <laughs>
3: we, we there's probably a good fifty five gallon drum that's empty right now of blood. I just kept telling Mark and the the effects crew, I'm like Trust me, I'm an old school blood guy. We're using practical effects. You can't use too much blood here. You're like, are you sure? I'm like, Mark, you cannot, you cannot use too much blood here. There's no possible way. So I was really, really happy with the amount of uh, squirtage we were able to get into the movie.
0: <laughs> well, I am, I am thrilled with all of it, Brian. I can't wait to see what you, what you bring us next.
3: Uh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And Doctor got, uh, got some. Doctor God has a. Uh, some iron in the fire. If you want to keep up with that, drgodcomedy.com, dot com d r g o d c o m d e y dot com, and uh, find out.
0: Oh, terrific! Thank you so much, Brian. An absolute Thank thrill. You. And All right. I hope to talk to you again soon.
3: Me too. That means I'm doing something.
0: That's right. Thanks, <laughs> that
3: means
0: Brian. <laughs> bye bye. Well, I think uh, I think our next caller is trying to call in. We're having we're having some technical difficulties today. So we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. Behind the lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer, located in the heart of Screenland. Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we are back on Behind the Lens, and with me now is executive producer Chris Bell of this incredible documentary, The Resurrection of Jake the Snake. How you doing? Oh my God, Chris, what, what a going? documentary.
4: Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, it was great to be a part of this documentary. I was the executive producer on it, and um, I was brought in about, like, uh, just actually in the beginning to... Uh, you know, just to help the guys uh, move the movie along and, and basically get it out there to so people could see it.
0: Absolutely. Were you familiar with Jake the Snake? Because I know that, you know, you had previously done a TV series, WWF Raw, um, your documentary Bigger, Stronger, Faster on Bodybuilding. Were you uh, familiar with Jake and his career in the aftermath?
4: I, I met Jake uh, when I was 12 years old, actually. He doesn't remember, but I'm, <laughs> and I was a huge wrestling fan and... um I met him in Poughkeepsie, New York. I was uh, backstage at a at an event. Um, I, I somehow snuck backstage with my friends and met Jake and some of the other wrestlers. It was like a huge high for me back then. So um, yeah, I've always been familiar with uh, with Jake and all the wrestlers.
0: What is the, when who came to you with this project? Did Steve come to you? For, Steve, you your director come to you? Yeah.
4: What happened was Steve and I. You know, I did Bigger, Stronger, Faster, and Steve was doing a movie in the fitness realm at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And this Jake thing kind of fell on his lap. It just sort of happened, you know, and and as it happened, I was watching uh, the progression on YouTube. So Steve and I had already been friends, and um, I was just watching what they were doing on YouTube, and I was like, what are you guys going to do with this? And they didn't even really know at the time, but, you know, we all talked about it and and realized that it was a movie. It wasn't just, you know, something that goes on YouTube.
0: I mean, it just the way the way the story comes together um it's more than just a wrestling legend who hit the skids and has been rehabilitated this is something that touches on the lives of so many of us when yeah, you know, when absolutely. times get tough the tough need to get going and luckily here Jake had Dallas Page
4: mhm you know not only uh, you know for me, it really it really touches deep. and the reason why I really wanted to help was because um you know my brother suffered from uh, major addiction problems, and he actually passed away after mm. we did bigger, stronger, faster, had nothing to do with steroids. It was all the uh, prescription drugs and other things that were out there that that got him, you know. and um after my brother went through that, I had a double hip replacement surgery, and I went through a stage of addiction to uh, you know painkillers. So it's so easy to get drawn into, and I think it touches so many people because addiction is you know, it's just such a serious issue, and it's so easy to just get sucked into it.
0: Mm-hmm. Very much so. How important is somebody like Dallas Page and what he has done since he left the ring?
4: Man, Dallas is just one of those guys that inspires you as soon as you get around them. You know I hadn't really known Dallas before we did this movie, mm-hmm. and after I met him, I was like, "This is the coolest guy in the world. He's just so positive and he is just so um energetic and I think that that carried over into helping Jake. you know you said that he was lucky to have him and there there really isn't anybody else I know that that just cares about people so much that um that could do this you know I don't know who else could pull that off i mean i you know when i for my addiction problem, I had to go to a full-blown rehab facility. Mm -hmm. And um, Dallas was able to do it in the comfort of his own home. It's kind of amazing that he was able to get Jake straight sort of really without knowing much about addiction. Mm
0: -hmm. How challenging was it throughout the production with cameras everywhere? You know, with how much of Jake, how much of his soul did Jake want to bear for the cameras and the audience?
4: Oh, you know, that, that was a fine line that had to be walked. Um, you know, the thing is you want to do a movie and you want to show how bad he was, but you know, you, you don't really want to show like everything because some of it's embarrassing, you know, embarrassing. And we did show some stuff that was embarrassing, you know, just enough, you know, to, to get it out there, but you know, we don't need to like beat a dead horse and say, you mm-hmm. know, Hey, he was an addict and you can see how bad it was. You don't need to like really hammer it home to you know, cause he's going to be, he's going to see it as well. You know, and that was a, a thing that Dallas was, uh, very careful with i mean that was kind of the amazing thing is that the fine line that uh steve and dallas had to walk and uh you know basically not tell like everything everything but but you know enough of everything that people get the point and you know jake is uh he's doing great now he actually is on a stand-up comedy tour in new york and um i guess the, the crowd's been loving it so he's been doing great and that that's going to be something that helps keep him sober
0: as a filmmaker, is this something? Is it the the personal the personal level of your stories, um, especially in a case like this? Are you always cognizant of that fine line and the feelings and the sensitivity of your subjects?
4: Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of crazy. I mean, it's um, I think the subjects of the documentary actually really get into it because I know for Jake, there's a point in the movie where he says, "Hey." you have your camera? Get over here. And he wants to tell the camera things, you know. So I think that um, after a while, Jake was Jake was aware that we were making a movie, and um, there were some things that he wanted to get out there. So, yeah, like, it's a fine, it's a fine line to walk. But, um, you know, for me, I just think honesty is the best policy. And mm-hmm. I think by telling people, hey, this is what I did, and this is where, where I came from, the audience really responds to that.
0: How, because the bulk of this is actually shot within Dallas's home, within the crib. Um, How many cameras did, because it seems like the camera is omnipresent everywhere within the house.
4: Yeah, it's kind of crazy how it it was done. I mean, I wasn't there during the whole shooting because I live in LA Mm -hmm. and they're over in Atlanta. So um, I know Steve had a bunch of cameras rigged up in the house and things like that. But what ended up happening in uh, those cameras that were like rigged up they're just set, sitting at one angle i think they may have used them once or twice in the movie and that was about it mm-hmm. some of those high angles that yeah. saw, and it just ended up being that like whenever jake was around the guys would have the cameras on them and i have to say dallas has just such a great crew of people and steve like steve kind of leads the the pack and there's there's about five or six other kids uh i say kids because they're a lot younger than i <laughs> am but um, there's five or six kids that that just hang out and edit at Dallas's house. It's kind of an amazing system that they have because Dallas already has the yoga, uh, his DDP yoga set up, um, you know, and that's that company keeps making videos for DDP yoga. So they basically just started filming Jake every day. So mm-hmm. sort of how it went, you know, they they already had a kind of a, a setup where they were filming a lot of stuff that they do anyway. And then when they moved Jake in, they just kept the cameras on all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. So how much footage did you and Steve have to cull through to come up with an edited version of this that was workable?
4: I think at the, at the end, it was about 400 hours of, of footage, somewhere wow. around there. Wow. And, and um, you know, when uh, when I first saw the movie, I, I basically, I was in L.A. And, and they brought me into Atlanta and I saw a, a rough cut of the movie and it was so good already that i helped i mean i gave a a lot of suggestions and things like that um but man like steve was just really able to find the story and that's that's really impressive for especially for a first time filmmaker i was just so impressed with with steve and what he did that you know i was just so excited to be involved in it
0: yeah the final product belies that him as a first time filmmaker it truly does yeah it doesn't
4: it doesn't look like a first time filmmaker no you know?
0: there is a cohesive narrative that runs through it. The narrative does not get lost. And that's so difficult, especially in a documentary when you could go off in so many different directions.
4: Yeah. People understand that. Uh, sometimes I just go, man, I just wish I had a script, you know, because when, uh, this is, uh, this is like the fourth documentary that I've, that I've worked on. Um, this, this is the first of a producer actually. And, um, sometimes you just wish you had a script to be able to tell the story. But, uh, when I saw the, the first rough cut, it was in pretty good shape. You know, the narrative was pretty much there. So I said, Steve, you know, give the credit to Steve and those guys for that. Um, they just did a great job at finding the story.
0: So do we have a release date yet for Resurrection of Jake the Snake? I mean, it was impressive uh, enough you kicked off the Arclight Slam Dance Cinema Club last night.
4: Yeah, the Arclight was amazing. I mean, we had like about 400 people there. We had... Uh, some wrestlers, Edge and uh, John Morrison and Rob Van Dam uh, came out. Danny Trejo came out. Uh, Joe Manganiello from True Blood, he did the uh, Q&A. So it was kind of a star-studded event, and it was it was amazing. Uh, right now we don't have a release date yet. Um, we're working on um, Netflix. We're working on Showtime and, and some other things. So um, hopefully it, it lands somewhere where a lot of people can see it.
0: Well, and I hope you let Annie know or let me know when you do get a release date, because this is a film that everybody, that everybody can take something from. Everybody can Absolutely. learn from seeing this.
4: Yeah, and, and God bless Jake for, uh, for doing it, because I think this is something that can just help so many other people that are going through this.
0: That's exactly it. Chris, thank you so, so much for calling in. Um, no problem. And I look forward to, uh, are you working on anything next? Yeah, I
4: actually have a movie at Tribeca Film Festival that I directed called Prescription Thugs. And part of the reason why I wanted to be involved in The Resurrection of Jake the Snake is because, I, you know, I went through this, and uh, Prescription Thugs talks about, um, you know, the, the pill epidemic in America and um, how we're just swallowed up by that. And basically, uh, this movie was was another chance to help people that are struggling with addiction. You know, part of... Being in the program is helping other people, and to me, this is a great way to help other people because rather than just help one on one, you can help the masses kind of understand this.
0: Well, I would love to take a look at that and review it for you if you can get if you can get it to me somehow.
4: Absolutely, we'll get it to you. Um, I'll get my producer to uh, hit you up, and uh, we'll get it to you. Um, you know, with you, Tribeca.
0: Oh, absolutely, Chris. Thank okay, you so, so much.
4: Yeah, thank you. I I appreciate it.
0: I'll talk to you again soon.
4: Okay, take
0: care. Bye-bye. And that was Chris Bell, executive producer of The Resurrection of Jake the Snake. And now we just have a couple minutes left. I'm going to give you what I've been promising you for two weeks. How the Cinderella's Glass Slipper was
1: made. The shoe. Because first of all, I thought I was going to just do it in in somehow or do it in glass. I, we we were looking into people who blow glass and make glass, and think house is going to work. And I thought, well, what's it actually going to look like if it's just flat glass like this with a bit of you know toes stuck in? It's not going to look that attractive, and it's not. I, mean, I suppose it could be really beautiful and elegant if it was completely clear glass. But I thought it needed to have something else to it. This was going to be held and seen and iconic. Um, then I went through looking at. I mean I went to museums and looked at glass and I was looking at engraved glass and coloured glass I mean does it have to be clear um, and then cut glass and I thought oh that's getting more interesting but it's making the shape weird and then I did actually see a piece of crystal like um, like chandelier crystal and how the light hits it and goes through it and refracts I thought that's what it's got to be it's got to absolutely light up on its own mm-hmm. at which point the only place to go for crystal is Swarovski so then I Approach Rossi, who I was working with anyway, because they provided every single sparkly thing in the film. You know, I mean, even the men have crystal on them. Which I tend to use it in very—I tend to use lots of very, very tiny ones, so you can't really see it, but the light's all happening. Mm-hmm. Um, then, yeah, then work with them on how do we get. I mean, I decided on the shape of the shoe. How do we make this in crystal? And there was lots of going backwards and forwards. And they did—they sent me 2D computerized renderings of faceting most of which looked really ugly until, I mean, not no disrespect to them, it's just a re- it was a really, really difficult thing to do. They took the project on and said, we don't know if it's going to work. We don't even know if we can do this, but we'll have a go. And then finally got the faceting down as fine as we possibly could, so the shoe still retained an elegant shape. And then they made the first prototype, which, again, we didn't know whether it was going to work until the first one came out.
0: And... That's it for today. We'll be back next week. Greg will be back with me. Alyssa Leonard will be here talking about Sally Pacholik. <laughs>